0: Hey guys, Montel, and welcome to this edition. Of Let's be blunt with Montel. My guest today is an Indian American attorney and longtime drug policy activist who's been writing, passing, and implementing equitable cannabis laws for over 20 years. She served as the commissioner of the Mass Cannabis Control Commission from 2017 to 2020. She left to focus on running. The Parabola Center, a nonprofit think tank that pushes for equity in cannabis policymaking. She's been described as the people's weed watchdog. Shailene Title, thank you so much for being honest with us today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to college?
1: Sure. Um, I grew up in the Chicago area, um, child of immigrants, and I went to college at University of Illinois. I got involved in drug policy around that time in college. Um, As a student, you could be involved in uh, changing marijuana laws. So that's how I got started.
0: And, you know, there are not a lot of you out there. This is back in 2020 when you got involved? Uh,
1: 2002 when I got involved.
0: 2002. Well, that's that's about the same time that I got involved in cannabis. There's not a lot of people back there who are really literally sticking their necks out at a time when it would look like uh, this may not have moved forward. So thank you so much thank for you. all the advocacy. Same to you. Absolutely. Now, when did you know you wanted to dedicate your professional career to cannabis policy?
1: There was one point. Um, so I grew up in a traditional Hindu household and our general philosophy is do your duty, do your karmic duty and see where fate takes you. And for me, it has taken me to cannabis policy. But there was one point after I graduated law school in 2008, um, I had decided to do tax law. And um, my first day, September 15, 2008 was the biggest crash, I think of all time at that point, the biggest stock market crash. And I just felt in the following days that I could not be working to make rich people richer. And I wanted to do cannabis advocacy full time. So I quit that job, I took a more than 50% pay cut. And like you said, this was a time when we didn't even know if legalization was going to happen. Um, But I felt like that was important.
0: There were some states back then that were passing uh, cannabis, uh, medical cannabis laws. Let's go back for a second. Were you a recreational cannabis user? Had you dabbled in cannabis? Uh, Had you known about it back when you first started advocating?
1: Yeah, I was a casual cannabis consumer for sure, Um, still am. But I think that what was really attractive to me was the fact that we had regular people, you know like you said, pioneers, um, patients, people who were directly affected that were passing these laws, and to me that was very different from the way that other laws were being passed
0: and going up uh, being an immigrant your your family's originally from India, right? Yes, do me a little favor. explain to me because i I've, I've had multiple people try to explain this. cannabis is not illegal, well, it is illegal in in india if you try to sell it right but it grows openly in india i was in um, um, mumbai and i also was in a couple of different places in india and remember somebody saying well you know this bang has been here for a long time so i mean what was the attitude about cannabis in india
1: Yeah, um, I mean, of course, I'm not an expert on the the legal status there. But yes, it's been used for thousands of years in India. Um, There's a festival that just passed called Mahashivratri and bhang is the typical um, uh, product that is consumed at that time. So it's used all over India.
0: That's cannabis infused in milk, right? In a milk- That's cannabis infused
1: in milk, right? With almonds and spices. And it's used all the time um, at festivals, it's used casually, it's grown all over the place. Um, I would say it's generally similar to what you might think of as decriminalized here or maybe in the Netherlands. Um, But on paper, it is certainly illegal.
0: So you you wouldn't get arrested for having consumed it, you get arrested if you try to sell it, right?
1: I think that's right. I think it would depend on what state you're in, but I think that's generally right.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Now, when you were in, uh, were you were the mass cannabis commissioner for three years? Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, mass regulations and how they differ from other states?
1: Yeah. So we were the first state to pass um, what's commonly known as as social equity. So making sure that people who have been harmed the most by cannabis prohibition are benefited in some way. And because we were the first, I would say we did not get it completely right, Um, but we learned a lot. And nor does anybody, certainly. Um, But one thing I think we did really well was anti-monopoly protections. So in Massachusetts, you can't have more than three of any type of cannabis license. So that kept a um, company from dominating the market right away. And then we also have a lot of policies that help encourage small businesses. One of them, for example, is called Freshly Baked. Um, I know you're connected with them as well. I'm
0: connected with Freshly Baked, without a doubt. They are my contract manufacturers in the state. Yes. Yes,
1: so I was very lucky. I got to receive the first adult-use delivery on the East Coast back in the summer of 2021. And the way that we had set up that transaction or that, that market, policy was that only companies like Freshly Baked that are social equity micro-businesses are able to create their products and then deliver it straight to the consumer and skip retail altogether. So I think that's an example of the type of innovation that helps to encourage um, those businesses while also keeping other businesses from getting so big that they dominate.
0: And that's one of your bigger fears is the fact that, that, well, look what's going on right now. I mean, we have these multi-state operators who are literally right now coming in and trying to take over the entire marketplace, right?
1: That's my biggest fear. Yes. And I'd say that's what I spend the majority of my time working on currently is trying to keep that from happening.
0: Okay. And um, uh, do you work just in mass or you working nationally? What are you doing
1: nationally? Yeah. So after my term as commissioner ended, I started a nonprofit think tank parabola center And it's a charity, I run it as a volunteer, and it's really my way of giving back because I want everyone to have the education and the expertise to be able to advocate for what they want to see in terms of the cannabis industry. So everybody has power. You know, even if you're a consumer alone, you have buying power. If you're in the industry, you choose what other companies you decide to work with. And so it's about being educated and using the power that you have to support people and small businesses, not those large companies that want monopolies.
0: Now, we uh, we talk a lot about social equity in the cannabis industry, but there is much, much, much more work that needs to be done. What are some of the most important aspects that? support successful social equity programs?
1: Well, um, I've actually stopped using the term social equity because yeah. it's become so vague to to be meaningless. Um, but I think the most important aspects are identifying the population that you're seeking to support and doing that in a constitutional way. So um, our policies in Massachusetts have been challenged, but never successfully, they have held up the whole time. And it's because we've been really careful to make sure that any groups that are getting special benefits are um, documented by evidence um, that they have been harmed by the drug war. So that's the first aspect. And then the second aspect is deciding by listening what benefits they'll have. So something like the direct-to-consumer model I just described for freshly baked, um, lending, real estate, um, technical assistance, all of these different benefits that the groups ask for, um, those are the two most important aspects for a successful social equity program. And of course, that continues to be something that we're working on um the one other thing i'll mention though about social equity is once you describe it to people surveys show that this is actually something that everyone supports democrats and republicans too um it's actually not controversial all, at all that we should be using cannabis laws to give back to the communities that have been the most harmed
0: and i'm surprised that you say that it's something that's that's that is you know recognized from both sides of the fence because i um, I've been in some places where, though, it just seems like that's recognized that, yes, we should, but, you know, a lot of lip service and not a lot done.
1: That's right. That's right. I think it's two things. One is that it's just hard to get it done. And then the other thing is it interferes with some people's profit models, so they're not going to support it. But when you survey citizens, they absolutely support um, this idea of social equity.
0: Gotcha. And which states do you think have put together the best cannabis regulations and why?
1: Right now, I would say New York, because I think New York has done an excellent job of seeing what happened in other states and actively trying to learn the lessons. So um, I know, for example, with their social equity applicants, they are getting to go first. Um, They are getting real estate. They are getting funding. Um, It takes a long time to set these structures up so that they work. um, But that's what New York is committed to.
0: Well, you know, and, and when New York comes on and New Jersey comes on in full blow, I mean, we just saw, we just witnessed that 2021. $25 $25 billion worth of legal cannabis was sold here in the United States. And that's not even taking into account the gray and black markets, which we probably were about $50 billion, So making cannabis about a $75 billion a year uh, uh, industry, which would put it up in the top of uh, some of the, most, the best performing industries in the entire country, if you put it all together. Um, you know, uh, uh, when do you see the Fed moving in any direction that seems to be more realistic than what we're doing today. I mean, it was, it was so crazy. I can't understand how we can sit back and beg, 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 beg and not beg, but take, 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 take as much as we can from a tax standpoint and regulate from putting unnecessary fees on top of things, how long this can exist and have a robust legal market. Um, you know The fact that you know the black and gray market seems to outperform the legal market two to one um it's only to me seemingly getting worse what do you think um if you put your crystal ball on as much as you've been working on legislation in this area i mean when do you think the fed's going to make a move to say yeah we're doing something a little stupid here <laughs> uh,
1: i think it's going to be many years uh maybe 10 years but I actually think that's a good thing. And I know that surprises people, you know, coming from someone working on legalization for the past 20 years. But I think it's a good thing because we really need that time because federal legalization is actually going to cause a lot of problems that we can't see right now because they're not happening yet.
0: Why don't you explain that to some people? Explain it to my, my, my listeners.
1: So, um, so first you have to understand that there are urgent things and there are non-urgent things and we can separate them. So I would consider urgent things being, making sure that medical patients have access, that they can grow at home, that they can have caregivers to grow for them. Um, expunging people's records, freeing people who are incarcerated for cannabis. These are urgent. What also, takes getting,
0: lot- getting rid of some of the older Canadian laws, like the packaging laws, which are just absolutely as antiquated as they can be. Some of the taxation, which is absolutely ridiculous, especially in mass and other places. I mean, the taxes are so high that it forces people to go back on the ground.
1: Absolutely. Right. We have like a 20% effective tax rate in Massachusetts. We have um, labeling that I don't think complies with public health and especially uh, the fact it goes overboard. It, yeah. It's
0: so overboard in the packaging. I mean, it come on now. I can buy, you know, deadlier products in the the, the drugstore or you know, at Cbs's or at Walgreens, then I can getting them out of uh, uh, some dispensaries. Uh, you know, you can I go into Walgreens, I could buy a bottle of aspirin. It just has like just a little single scrap, a screw cap that, you know, is considered a childproof cap. And if we, a child buys that, takes it home, they open it. Hey, you have that bottle, they're dead on the kitchen floor before they come home where we have some packaging requirements for cannabis products that are just ridiculous.
1: They are ridiculous, they're absolutely ridiculous. And to your point, you know, overhauling them is a relatively straightforward process because we have so many other models in place, like aspirin. But I would still put that in the non-urgent category in the sense of it's not you know life or death. And so I think that being able to separate those two things is really important because it is going to take time to develop market structure, labeling, testing, all of that at the federal level. And we should be starting that process now. So once we separate those two things, urgent and non-urgent, then we need to look around and see what actually will happen after federal legalization that hasn't happened yet. So it's three things. The first thing is that we have not seen giant companies like Amazon or Big Tobacco enter the market yet because they're not taking the risk of entering um, the market for a federally illegal product. So that is going to change. The second thing that's going to change is we now have dozens of individual state markets. But once we have federal legalization, they'll be able to um, have commerce in between states. They'll be able to operate in multiple states. That's if that's
0: if the states go for it. I'm just starting to figure out. I mean, in places like you know, Georgia just passed a law that's going to make it almost impossible for any other state who's producing a cannabis product right now to be able to buy their products in their state because their law requires that the products don't have more than 5% THC in them. So they're writing mm-hmm. regulations that really are contra, con, counter to. Almost every other state that's passed a law today, they don't allow for edibles, and allow for any. They don't even allow for any right. online marketing. Come on.
1: So you may not be able to keep um, policies like that after legalization. They might violate the dormant commerce clause. So I suggest um, people who are interested keep following Parabola Center um, because we these are the types of issues that we put out uh, education about. And I think that you're right. We want to make sure that we don't have states that have regulations that are so strict that they're going to you know not really even allow anybody to operate so the third thing is that so far it's been activists up until the past few years it's been largely patients who are impacted and people who are impacted that have been passing these laws. And when, you know, we've seen challenges in the past few years, like trying to stop people from being able to grow at home, they mostly haven't been successful. But once we have federal legalization and there is real lobbying money that we haven't seen before, um, those struggles to pass policies are going to be very different from what we've seen the past 20 years. And so when you put those three things together, I think it becomes very clear, um, especially like to people like us that have been doing this for the past decades, that we want to be very intentional about how it looks. And we want to make sure that people who will be impacted understand these issues and that they're advocating for the v- vision of legalization that they want and not just leaving it up to chance.
0: Gotcha. And 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 again, you think it'll be ten years out, but I mean, I I, I think we're going to have to clean out the Senate and the House with some of these ancient politicians before we actually move this ball forward. I think we've got too many many diehards who have been around for too long who've been discussing this for 20 years and given the right to make decisions that got to get out, right?
1: I think they've got to get out, yeah. And whoever replaces them is going to have a much more current view, I hope.
0: Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, what do you think are some of the most important, other than the ones you just addressed, other important issues when it comes to, I mean, just recently, what, last week, the DEA just issued a uh, memo about, you know, uh, THC8, some of the other derivatives, and synthetic or not synthetic, but but manipulated versions of cannabinoids. And I, I've been saying this for years now. I, I've been against THC8 and THCO and, you know, uh, uh, all the, 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 the things that we are creating that may not necessarily even actually and be agonist for our endocannabinoid system. I mean, we don't even know, I mean, some of science has not really followed or kept up to figure out whether or not even THC-8 mm-hmm. is, can it even be absorbed and which one of our receptors actually picks that up. So, you know, that's the reason why I think there's so many people having such a hard time with it, you know, that are using like THC-8 and and having all these Very different outcomes, but that's a problem with our industry. This is an industry that literally just basically, you know, what on itself.
1: I don't know if I have anything to add to that. I I think you're completely right. And I think that our regulations are moving much faster than the science. And yeah, we're not talking about the bong that's been used in India, you know, for thousands of years. We're talking about chemicals that have been changed you know just now that haven't been tested that we should not be letting people you know essentially experiment with and selling them and
0: selling them in 7-elevens and, and them. Gas stations. come on now
1: exactly exactly
0: yeah it's really bad that, that's that's when i've been been really just speaking as loudly as i could for years now about the fact that the industry needs to do a better job at policing itself i mean that's part of the other problem that we have i think is that. We're in an industry now that everybody is really after their own. You know what I mean? Nobody's really, I can remember back in, oh, 2004, five, six, seven, when I was traveling around the country, speaking before a lot of different legislatures, it seemed to be, there were at least three or four different groups that though they may have had different agendas, they all seemed to work together. Now it's so disjointed, everybody's trying to scratch out their own little piece of the pie that they don't work together anymore
1: that's why i had to start a new organization because i couldn't find one and i think that what has changed is there's a profit incentive now that we Mm -hmm. didn't have then and i think when you have a profit incentive that's very different from working for public health and public safety
0: right 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 so now i mean again you think new york is going to try to get this relatively right
1: so far i think that um they've really been committed to the principles that are on paper but you really never know until it rolls out on the ground right
0: right 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 i'm looking at mass now mass has just now started issuing public consumption licenses right or uh,
1: um they haven't started issuing them but the regulations are in place
0: regulations are in place so they're going to start doing that pretty soon and what do you think how do you think that's going to affect the overall trajectory of let's say legalization nationwide because you know you're going to have well, we already know that when talking to some of the leaders in tourism around the world, you know, uh, there's there's indications that anywhere from 45 to 50 percent of people who are now calling any travel agency in the country and the world have questions about cannabis. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's one of the things that to me, I think, is going to help push this forward a little bit more because as states start battling for their tourist dollars. Yes. We're going to start recognizing that more and more states are going to start begging that some of the walls come down that block people from coming to their state. Right.
1: Yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, Let me start with the short term uh, kind of pessimistic thing, which is that unfortunately the mass regulations, um, which I led on, are terrible. So what we had to get in order to get the votes for it to pass. Um, is this system where you can't even smoke or vape indoors? Um, edibles have to be pre-packaged, you can't have infused meals. Um, they're just they they are not workable as they are. Um, they have to be changed. But the long view is I completely agree that it's people that are changing this. We have, I think, one out of five adults in Massachusetts at least are consumers now. And they are going to affect so many different forms of the economy, but for sure, tourism is a huge one, just like craft wine, craft beer, craft food are all um, important tourism uh, sub-industries, I guess. And like you just said, that's something that can't be taken away. Like you can't take that away from say Massachusetts or New York, you know, and grow it somewhere else and import it because it's a tourism experience. So I think that's gonna be huge moving forward once we get these regulations right.
0: Sure, and then you know now you also have in recent years we've been seeing a lot of these MSOs these multi state operators you know pop up and 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 they figured out how to get around the laws by just using their dollars to go from state to state to state to state to state to, state to build out products, and then you know I'm I, I'm not trying to. <laughs> In a, in a way it's kind of what I'm doing is that I literally have a brand that's in mass. I have a Massachusetts manufacturer. I'm going to go to Georgia. I'll have a Georgia manufacturer. I might go into, you know, uh, North Carolina if it passes or Illinois and do the same thing. I've already got a CBD line out. That's that will it hits marketplace in about another two weeks. That's national. Um, so I'm in a, in essence, almost like an MSO myself, which, which is really, what I poo poo, but at the same time, you know, I think I have a quality product that is, is, and does good for consumers. I mean, do you think that that's really how to do it? Uh, you know, I'm an individual and have a very small company. However, you know, we're going to blink an eye and, you know, all of the former tobacco manufacturers, you know, some of the drug manufacturers are going to start stepping in. We just saw what a week ago that, um, was it Pfizer just spent $6.7 billion to purchase another uh, pharmaceutical company that was working on a specific type of cannabinoid? Um, you know, when you get the Pfizer's, I I can't compete against Pfizer, and I don't think anybody else at my level could compete against Pfizer. What do you think about this whole big MSO thing that's happening is taking over the country right now?
1: I think there's nothing inherently wrong with being a multi-state organization. I think there's a lot of small businesses that I frequent that I hope will be able to grow to other states. I think where we start to see problems is when companies get so big that they are trying to reduce competition and they're trying to impact regulations so that they're not being regulated for the point of public health and public safety anymore. And I think most important, and this is primarily what I work on because it is so largely invisible, is the threat of big tobacco, big alcohol and big pharma. We know and they're, right. they are absolutely working to take over at the federal level to write the legalization bills. But what's really interesting is that they are not, so powerful that, for example, they can get a federal legalization bill passed. Many of them were working on the Safe Banking Act, which didn't pass, and they've started front groups to try and look like activists, right? So if activists weren't powerful, why would you be pretending to be an activist? So I think we have plenty of time, um, if we start now and we are very careful about it to make sure that we don't have another big tobacco or big alcohol. Or big and we big do
0: tobacco. know you just said you just said agonists. We know agonists are powerful because that's the only reason why I think that we've reached the level that we've reached today. Yeah. But unfortunately, and mm-hmm. you know, just let me hear your views about this. I mean, I, I know you are and and but you were, you know, an N of one um, in a sense that, you know, I find it it, it just crazy that i go to uh, you know a lot of different conventions and i've spoken at a lot of different ones around the world and you know you walk in the door and everybody's yeah yeah we got to we got to come together and then as soon as the speech is over and you go out in the hallway and it's like nah it, you gotta pull teeth to get a card you gotta you know nobody seems to want to work with each other because everybody's so afraid of their own little fiefdom i mean mm-hmm. i don't you think that this has got to stop At the grassroots level. I mean, it's got to start and stop there. We got to stop this idea that, you know, a rising tide doesn't lift all boats and go back to the idea that we could work together. I mean, this is an industry that I think by now, come on, 20 years in, we should be at a point where, you know, we are the biggest lobbyists down in Washington, D.C., but instead it's pharma, not us. And as long as pharma gets to say, don't let them in, we won't get in.
1: You know what I think we could unite on though, is keeping out big tobacco and big pharma. I think no matter whether you're like a tiny entrepreneur or an MSO, anybody in the industry right now should be afraid of that, unless they're trying to get acquired by them. Um, But one way we can do it is, have you heard of mandatory disqualifications? So in most states, you can't enter the industry if you have a certain criminal background Sometimes it's cannabis convictions, which is, of course, ridiculous. Um, In other places, it's like fraud, um, other types of uh, business related convictions. What we should have is if you, like the big tobacco industry, have been found to be guilty of lying to the public for profit, manipulating your product to be more addictive, knowing that it kills people and, and not telling anybody. All of these things that big tobacco has done that should be a mandatory disqualification for getting into the cannabis industry i think that's something we could unite on
0: well we could unite on it but big money that goes along with those big companies you know may be what shuts us down and trying to block them i mean you know Uh, again, I say big money, come on, $25 billion in the legal marketplace. And all I keep hearing from people in the industry is that, well, but Montel, that's really not $25 billion because, you know, we had to spend 20% of that in taxes. Okay. So let's say 20% of it, take it off the top. That's $20 billion that we could still come together on and utilize in an effort to lobby Congress the same way as Big Pharma does. And I think we make big differences. But again, Everybody in this industry is too busy trying to get in, get themselves their own yacht or their Mercedes-Benz or their Rolls-Royce rather than try to come together to move the industry forward so that 10 years from now, there could be other people buying Mercedes-Benz. You know what I mean?
1: Yes. Yes. And it's not just about money, though. Right. Like people were telling us right in 2005, big pharma is never going to let legalization pass. Right. Right. But look what happened. And it wasn't because of money it's because people like you and Sanjay Gupta and people who like had the trust of the public talked about why we should change the laws. And eventually that's why it changed. It didn't change because of big money.
0: Right. 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 You are right. But I but I, I I've been been jaded in the fact that I just don't see, I mean, there was a time when you had DPA, MPP, you know, all these different organizations that, though, again, each one of them were trying to eke out their own little footprint, they were at least working together. You know, I got involved in Pennsylvania like seven years ago, eight years ago, and, and, and uh, I, literally one of the only events that I went to that both MPP and DPA were together with us, all with the same front. And, and now, um, you know, a lot of these organizations, though their leaders have passed, um, uh, don't seem to want to work together anymore. And I'm just sorry. Have you run across that, too?
1: Yeah. And I get jaded, too. And I take a break and I come back because that's all you can do.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, you you talk a lot about, you know, what we learn from you know history and alcohol regulations. A lot of people don't even understand is that, uh, you know, the. biggest uh, uh, proponent of prohibition, uh, Anslinger, when he lost his job because they passed rules and and lifted prohibition. That's who was the jerk who started pushing forward for cannabis prohibition and was successful at it because he had the backing of, you know, the William Randolph Hearst of the world and the Charles DuPonts of the world who funded that. Um, You know, we're at a time right now where if we were to look at i mean you talk a lot about you know the difference in going back in history and taking a look at alcohol regulation and you know how we should apply some of those things to cannabis right what do you think
1: yeah and and it's never going to be a waste of time to do that because things that were put in place after prohibition was lifted are still in place now and when you ask why i used to ask why in government They don't know the answer they said somebody put this in place 100 years ago and it's still there so that's the kind of decisions that all of us are going to be in charge of and it's going to have a really lasting impact um i think two things that i highlight about alcohol regulation is one that they deliberately did not allow vertical integration so that means that one company can't own the entire supply chain um, from manufacturing to retail. And that's not something that's being discussed um, similarly in cannabis. So it's it's something to be aware of.
0: Yeah. And lots, of, and lots of states do issue these completely vertical licenses right. to just one company. Or, you know, like right now we're dealing in Georgia and Georgia's got going to end up with five licenses that are all completely vertical. But That's so bad. Yeah. And they only have two of them out there right now.
1: That's So if people are interested in this, I have a paper called um, Preventing Cannabis Monopolies, um, published by the Ohio State University Drug Enforcement and Policy Center. And I talked to anti-monopoly experts and the first thing they all said was prevent vertical integration because when you allow it, you're gonna have situations just like that in Georgia. So that's the one thing. The other thing is um, craft beer and wine because of a lot of struggle Um, They've had good policies that are put in place, and we can start that now. So one is the direct-to-consumer model that I mentioned. Um, Other is is tourism. But there's so many different ways that small businesses can get together um, and fight for legalization policies that protect them. And from what I see, that's not happening yet. And it's it's really ripe for it right now.
0: Well, and you also say that federal legalization will also threaten small business companies and their ability to compete. Will it not?
1: Yes, it absolutely will. Um, and I think that if people were more aware of what interstate commerce would look like by default, um, the the size of the companies that are going to enter by default, and then the fact that this won't be, you know, small activists talking to their city councilor or their state legislator right now, you know, saying, you know, I have a condition or I want to start a business. That is how, um, laws have passed up until now when it changes and it's big tobacco and it's pfizer um it's going to look very different and the reason i keep emphasizing that is because the intuition is to look around and say hey the cannabis industry is not so bad let's pass legalization let's deal with research and taxes and labeling um but you should be a little bit scared of it you should be because if it doesn't turn out well we're not going to be able to reverse it
0: right right and you know i mean so so would the best idea be to start activism on your state level for those who are tuned in and then try to shift to the federal level let's clean up the act of your background your your backyard first right
1: i think that's absolutely right and once we have good policies at the state level and we can point to them it's going to be a lot easier at the federal level to protect it or to replicate it
0: gotcha now again let's talk a little bit more about You just said in Massachusetts, though the regulation has passed, they have not issued any licenses yet for public consumption. Yeah. For
1: social
0: consumption. Yeah. So how do you I mean, how do you think? And a lot a lot of states are right now looking at social consumption um, initiatives all the way across the board. A lot of them that already passed, you know, especially adult use uh, uh, laws are starting to look at rewriting laws now for social consumption. But how do you think that's going to impact the the idea of more and more people understanding the need for medical you know i'm saying i i I literally walked out of a i was at a convention this weekend um in california um uh the world brain mapping society's um annual convention some of the top neurologists in the world walked out of uh you know probably one of the nicest hotels in all of downtown los angeles and i was walking down the street with a you know a couple of the people who were attendees of the conference one or two were were neurologists and you know, one of the first things that one of the doctors said when we walked that step in the street goes, I smell marijuana. I was like, yeah, you do, you don't know smell it yeah, do. Where'd you go to New York? Cause you're gonna smell it in the street anywhere you go. Um, Cause they have now, as long as you don't do it in front of a school, you can, there are anywhere you can smoke a cigarette, you yeah. can smell cannabis. So good. Uh, it is good, but at the same time, it also raises the ire of, you know, that generation that's still, I can't stand cannabis. You know, uh, do you think that 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 when we start having restaurants or social lounges open and then, you know, wafting into the air out in the street, you know, is it going to just piss more people off, excuse my mouth, or is it just going or is it going to become something that people recognize as that's OK, because I can't be affected by it unless I stand here and sniff it up as much as I can.
1: I think it's a solvable problem. Um, we have had so many decades to work on this with tobacco and we found, you know, lounges that are closed or outdoor areas or designated, you know, places where you can stand. I think we can use all of that to make sensible um, social consumption laws. But what I worry about is the emergency room visits for children because data shows that Um, More children are getting into edibles um, and, you know, it's causing them to it's causing them harm. They have to go to the ER. I think. it's it's, it's
0: But but some of that's expensive because of this Delta eight that's on sale and, you know, 7-Elevens and gas stations. Some of those children would not have access to that if they shut that crap down. Excuse
1: my mouth. I think that's right. And I also think some of it is people who would have um, not gone to the hospital before during Prohibition because they would have been scared or they wouldn't have admitted that that's what they were using. So, yeah, a lot of that can explain it. But nonetheless, I think the data is still showing that the visits are increasing. And I think people are right to be concerned about it. So I'm more worried about that um, than tobacco smoke. But either way, the point is we have public health standards in place that we've learned that we can apply um to cannabis and and sometimes the profit incentive and the public health incentive are going to contradict each other and i think a lot of us have to stand for the public health incentive in that case because if you have with something like tobacco or you know vaping you have a big public health crisis then our policymakers are just going to ban everything and roll it back right like we've seen how they have knee-jerk reactions and we don't want that to happen
0: and, you know, but now, do you not think that, and i just throw this out. I mean, I think one of the things that this industry has done that's been pretty good in the last few years is that we do do a lot of B2B. You know, there are a lot of conferences all over America, B2B conferences every other week. There's another one. Um, but what we do do is a really piss-poor job, excuse my mouth again, of doing B2C, the mm. business responsibility of educating the consumer. We don't. And if we if we took the time to really, truly educate the consumer, we could let the consumer know that, you know, if you overeat some, you know, infused cannabis edible product, you ain't dying. I mean, you know, no one in the history of cannabis has died from, you know, uh, uh, consuming too much. You might go to sleep for a little while. It's going to maybe the next morning give you a little headache, maybe, um, depending on your own, you know, um, um, endocannabinoid system. But. At the same time if we spent more time educating the masses and saying that if you did overindulge just sit down relax you're not dying you don't have to go to the emergency room but we don't even spend a lot of time doing that Um, or
1: educating them just to say you know lock this up keep it away from your kids kids. keep it from your dogs like all of that education is very important
0: right and uh, but but don't you think that that's the responsibility of us the Cannabis providers. I mean, I'm appalled by the fact that, you know, there aren't. and, And again, some states legislative. The way they legislated the programs is what stops us from educating.
1: It stopped, oh, because it yeah, stops companies from making claims, you mean? Not just
0: from making claims, but you can't even promote your product. You can't say, well, mm-hmm. if you come in, we do this, and we can tell you that if you happen not make sure. I mean, at the end of every single one of those commercials could be a really unbelievable public service announcement. Make sure that you lock this product up when you go home, you know, don't have it anywhere near your children. But we don't even get to say that.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that's a great question. I think that in general – the answer is, for me, is no, I don't think that um, businesses in general should be responsible for this because you mentioned earlier, like an industry policing itself. I don't think we have a lot of examples that industries of industries that successfully police themselves. Oh, wait, but, to- but, 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 wait, let me finish the point, though. But, mm-hmm. The problem there is the big, biggest companies, right, that are trying to change regulations or outsmart them. I think there are a lot of smaller businesses that would, in fact, do a good job of educating. And you make that distinction of scale and then you bring in people who are trusted members of their local communities to be part of the education.
0: Well, you know, I mean, if we go back 30, 40, 50 years, 40, 40 years ago, they legalized oxygen as a medical treatment. Remember, when they started allowing hyperbaric chambers to be used not only for diving, but for the masses, um, the hyperbaric industry was kind of, in a way, similar to the cannabis industry. It was an industry that was just kind of loosely regulated. There were no national organizations that brought them together. But then they started realizing that oxygen, could air be dangerous? Yes, air can be dangerous if you implement a a, um, hyperbaric chamber, you put people in the wrong way and you overpressurize them, it could be dangerous. So that industry had to step out and say to themselves, okay, we got to clean this up. And they did clean it up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's why now all over the country, you can see hyperbaric chamber places almost in every single state. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, they weren't around. Now, you know, the cannabis industry, I think, could take, you know, some some lead from them. I mean, you know, look at that and say, you know, we need to come together and say to ourselves, no, we are not going to try to use some chemicals under the sink to create a new cannabinoid. No, we are not going to put on our shelves or allow to be sold. If I find something being sold at the, the local gas station out on highway, whatever, blah, 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 you know, I'm going I'm to report that to the police and say, no, that's not a good product. But we're not doing that. And instead, we're infusing it in some trash that we're providing to our customers. I still, I know people who say, well, I'm going to figure out a way to get around it. What do you mean you're going to figure out a way to get around it? What are you going to make Delta 7 now? You know, I'm going to make Delta 8.3. And, you know, when we know that there is a federal law that says anytime you synthesize something that has the same reaction as something that's already been illegal, it's as illegal as the original substance, right? Right. But but um, it seems like our industry doesn't doesn't want to do that. So when I say self-policing, that's what I mean by it. I'm I'm not saying that we have to go in and start tattletaling on everybody, but there are certain things that we need to do.
1: That's right. To protect us. Absolutely. Yes.
0: Sure. So anything else you want to add?
1: uh you know i just i just want to thank you because i think that um you know we see a lot of celebrity brands out there and i think you've been really intentional about who you work with and i think that even since you know 2005 you've changed the way people think about this product and you've just consistently had a lot of principles and that's why i wanted to to come on the show and, and talk to you so thank oh my you. goodness
0: thank you so much i really appreciate it and look i mean you're doing you know the heavy lifting the hard work that a lot of people in this industry are afraid to do. So I want you to know you always have a home here. Our listeners are always going to be willing to listen to what you have to say. So if you ever want to update us, you want to give us some new feedback, want to have some more conversations, just chop it up. I'd love to have you back, Okay? Thank you. For sure, you take care of yourself. And if anybody wanted to get more information about what you do about the uh, Parabola uh, organization, where would they go?
1: ParabolaCenter.com, and I'm very active on Twitter, at Shaleen Title, and on Instagram, Parabolus Center.
0: Okay, for sure. So I'll make sure our viewers, you know, we'll make sure we lower third of that so people know how to get a hold of you. Thank you so much for being a part of the show today, and I want to thank all of you for continuing to tune into Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments.
1: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.